BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, March 13th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds and our new Tumblr page, inquiringshow.tumblr.com. We're also on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. This week's episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. And Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you go to Harry's.com and use coupon code inquiringminds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, coupon code inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download, in streaming, or DVD and CD. And for a limited time only, The Great Courses is offering our listeners 80% off the original price of one of their courses, Origins of the Human Mind. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. So I work at UCSF, and I sat down with Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo, a professor of medicine and director of the Center for Vulnerable Populations at UCSF. She's part of a new project called Sugar Science, which focuses on evidence-based information on added sugar to your diet. The team reviewed 8,000 articles and underscore the scientific consensus. There is a causal link between increased consumption of added sugar and increased risks of chronic disease like type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and liver disease. Kirsten specifically focuses on communities at most risk, oftentimes teens and poor and minority communities. And she believes we're in a public health emergency. For example, 10 years ago, the CDC said one in 11 teens had the precursor for diabetes. Now it's one in four. And in certain African-American and Latino communities, that number is one in two. At the CVP, she's engaged community groups to give voice to teens through a program called Youth Speaks, which is a spoken word organization. When she brought up the notion of health consequences from added sugar, pretty much every teenager already knew somebody with type 2 diabetes. There was a feeling that they were being targeted by marketing campaigns and artificially lowered prices for soda and sugary beverages. 
Take a listen to this piece. Disintegrate on your tongue, euphoria lasts a second, you're soaring and energetic, the orange soda and cola are flowing all through your vessels, I'm slowly in epidemic, controlling the diabetics. You know, it's a it's a very catchy tune. I certainly enjoyed it. I watched the video too that goes along with it. We'll post that on our Tumblr because it's really quite funny. Um, but of course, it's a very serious topic. And I have to say, there was another clip or another video that also really tugged at my heartstrings, which which really got to this notion that a lot of these kids are learning about their habits, obviously from their parents. So this this particular one was um, about a woman who's in her thirties and her she had to lose her feet because of her diabetes. And now her daughter is also addicted to Pepsi. And it's just, it's really troubling. And I, you know, I guess it wasn't until I started watching them, you know, I know we shouldn't eat sugar. I know that this is a problem, but you know, this really underscores how it's also a problem in an underserved community and that we need to start doing something about it. I was really surprised thinking about this from the perspective of that teens are the most at risk, but it makes sense. I, I When we grew up, I was thinking about heart disease as something for 50 and 60-year-olds. Now we're seeing that develop in 20 and 30-year-olds. So if we're actually going to do any prevention, teens are the group that need to make some changes in their lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, the, the one in two number from the CDC is just, I mean, I, I have a hard time believing it. It's it's quality data, which is what is shocking. One in two. I don't know what the ramifications of that will be. I mean, just on the pure economics of it, that's going to put a staggering weight on our medical system. I mean, I think people kind of see diabetes as that's why I sort of liked this, this, that the one video that I highlighted, they see diabetes as well, you can just it's a curable disease, right? Or not a curable, it's treatable, right? You can just continue to inject yourself with insulin and limit your sugar intake, you'll be fine. But the truth is, is that it's not true. (laughs) You know, there are serious consequences to living with diabetes for a long period of time. And if you get type two diabetes as early as in your 20s or 30s, I mean, your lifespan is going to be shorter. You know, this woman lost her legs. I think the estimate is that you lose 10 years on your lifespan by contracting at that age. You know, my mother has type 2 diabetes. Uh, I have genetic factors for for type 2 diabetes that I have to be concerned about. Uh, But this this is um, uh, this does border on being a public health emergency. So that's our interview today. But before we get even more in depth into the sugar conversation, I wanted to talk about a study that caught my eye that is all about implanting false memories. So, you know, I did my PhD at UCLA and on memory, and my favorite part of the brain is the hippocampus. That's what I studied. And so I love it when new work comes out that sort of makes us give us a little bit more information about what the hippocampus really does and how memory works. It's a fascinating topic for me. And this particular study came out of a, um, a French research lab. And what they did is they had a, a series of mice. And in the mice, they found these cells called place cells, which we've known exist for a long time. So these are cells that when a mouse is in a particular part of an environment, you know, whether it's a cage or a maze or something, 
a cell fires. And so these cells kind of track where the mouse is. It's it's the way in which we're able to navigate through space. And we actually know that we have very similar cells in our own brains. And, you know, these cells can distinguish between when you're in a place for a particular goal. Like, let's say I go up to my kitchen to get something from the refrigerator. You know, I have cells that will fire in a certain way when I do that versus if I'm going into my kitchen just to get to a different room in my house and so forth. And so these cells are really interesting. You know, we call them play cells are involved in in this navigation. And in these mice, one thing that these play cells can do is sort of signal when or what part of an environment is rewarding. And the way they do that is, of course, associating activity in the portion of the brain that isn't involved in reward uh, with that particular play cell. And so in these mice, they, they had sort of two parts of the experiment. The first part was where they would look at these play cells and they would watch what that, what would happen when they timed stimulation of a part of the reward circuitry called um, the medial forebrain bundle uh, to, to coincide with the firing of a particular play cell. And of course, they noticed that, that when they did that, so, so a play cell is firing. And so then they pair the firing of this rewarding cell. And all of a sudden, the mouse wants to spend more time in the place where the play cell you know, is, is associated, right? It thinks, well, this part of the environment must be rewarding because, you know, this, this reward part of my brain is firing. And But then the really cool thing of, about this study is that they took another set of mice and they waited until they were asleep. And then they paired the play cell activity with activity in the medial forebrain bundle so that they artificially inserted an association during sleep between that particular play cell and reward. And when the mouse... Wait, 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 not done yet. (laughs) So when the mouse, when the mice woke up, they were then allowed to explore the environment. And lo and behold, the mouse, the, the mice that had this association created for them spent more time in one particular part of the environment, whereas the other mice just wandered around aimlessly. So they totally implanted a memory while these mice were sleeping. <laughs> yeah, totally. What but, is- you know, it's interesting to me is that, you know, we call this a false memory. And it's true that the mouse did not go into the environment and receive a reward which would create the association. So in that way, it's kind of false. It's not really based on a experience. But I don't see how you can really distinguish a false memory that you've created through this sort of association signaling um, with one that would be sort of naturally created. And so I don't know that even saying it's a false memory is quite the right term because you've actually created a true memory. So why is it so important that they did that while the mice were sleeping? Aha. Uh-huh. So we do know that what happens during sleep, especially in these play cells, is that the mouse replays some of the firing patterns that they experienced during the day. So that's one way in which your memories can get consolidated during sleep. So you know, what happens is that we lose a lot of memories in a 24 hour period, uh, memories like what you had for breakfast, you know, who you met on the bus and so forth. Um, we don't want to remember everything in a 24 hour period. So during sleep, one of the things that happens in your brain is that the memories that are kind of irrelevant and not that useful get cleaned up, they get forgotten. Uh, but the memories that are important, so ones in which you, you know, experience something rewarding or something emotional, those get consolidated. And so you can kind of think about them as getting strengthened so that they're going to last a little bit longer. And so what we don't know yet is exactly how that consolidation process happens during the replaying. And so this was one way in which they were actually trying to, you know, sort of 
move along that consolidation process, manipulate the consolidation process to see whether the simple pairing of firing of these two cells would create that association. And lo and behold, it did. This kind of sounds like the work that um, a psychologist that you mentioned a lot on the podcast, Beth Loftus, has done on implanting false memories in in humans using non-technological techniques. Yeah. So what she essentially does is kind of uses the way our cognitive biases work. Uh, and sort of, you know, for example, one of the things that she's done is she's shown pictures of people in impossible situations. Like, for example, I, I kind of I'm probably going to get this wrong, because I always forget, you know, which characters are part of Disney and which are Warner Brothers. But I think Bugs Bunny is Warner Brothers, right? Definitely so, Warner Brothers. Okay, so she would, for example, kind of Photoshop or create a photograph of you as a child at Disneyland shaking hands with Bugs Bunny. And, you know, in a proportion of people, they would say, I totally remember that it was a beautiful day. And I had just had a hot dog and blah, blah, blah. And they'd launch into these like relatively detailed memories that are obviously false, because there's no way that you would have met Bugs Bunny at Disneyland. Um, you know, but she's giving you some evidence that you're then trying to make sense of. And so in some ways, you know, you could argue that the problem is not necessarily of false information being implanted, but rather your inability to distinguish a real recollection from the way your brain is kind of interpreting this, this new evidence or, or stimulus. Um, but in this case, they're actually creating an association uh, that, I, you know, is kind of is visceral. And, and, and so in some, some ways, I don't know how possible this would be in humans. Well, for one thing, it'd be very invasive. You'd have to somehow like, you know, target cells in one part of the brain, although I suppose maybe you could do it using drugs. Um, but you know that 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 kind of pairing was is very specific, um, and you know again we're really talking about these relatively primitive memories. So this would be a sense that there is something rewarding or or a positive association uh, with some part of the environment or something else that you're remembering. Um, so, but in humans, of course, we're much more complicated. So the specificity of memory is something that you know we tend to hold in high regard. And I think that that's where a lot of these kinds of studies, when we're trying to apply uh, a mouse study to potentially a human application, fall short. Well, I guess we have to have Beth on and we'll see if anyone actually remembers the episode. (laughs) For my Science in the News segment this week, it's very pertinent to uh, this week's interview. Uh, The WHO, the World Health Organization, finally released their guidelines for added sugar in your diet. Now, uh, in added sugar is... Basically, monosaccharides like glucose or fructose or disaccharides like sucrose or table sugar that are added to foods and drinks primarily by manufacturers, sugar-sweetened drinks and sodas, etc. So, Indre, any guess how much added sugar Americans consume on average per day? Oh, man. A lot. I have no idea what the actual numbers would be. It's a fifth of a pound. And because this is a science show, we'll switch what? to we'll switch to metric units. So that's about eighty grams. And uh, the new guidelines from the WHO say they want us to reduce the amount of calories that we get from added sugar to ten percent of our total, or about fifty grams. So we're like getting close to double the amount that they want to see us doing. And uh, to give you a further idea of how much sugar that is, uh, so fifty grams of sugar. That's equivalent to a pint of orange juice, and it's less than a bottle of soda. So we're not talking about very much. If you actually tracked your your sugar, uh, your added sugar intake, I think you'd be really surprised. 
Yeah, you know, I, I read these new these new who guidelines, and uh, you know, it, it's always good to be reminded we shouldn't eat sugar. I get it, but I eat a lot of sugar. Unfortunately, I have a sweet tooth, and I know it's bad for me. And you know, I certainly watch my weight and I exercise accordingly, and so forth. And so. These kinds of numbers, I just don't think they're going to have an impact on my behavior on a daily basis. Because how do I? How first of all, how can I possibly calculate how many grams of sugar I consume in a day? I mean, it just seems. Are we kind of misguided in terms of how we are creating these guidelines and asking people to follow them? Because I just don't see how practically anybody can. Yeah, first of all, I think in America people would have problem with their. Uh, with the weights being in grams anyway. So if we even get past that issue, I think what they're really hoping to do is to have adoption by dietary guidelines from government. So let's say the U.S. government actually took on these guidelines and and went with what the WHO really wanted to, to say, which is 25 grams of added sugar. They actually have the power to affect change down to uh, free and reduced lunches at schools. Those dietary guidelines can come with some weight in actual policy. And I think that's the actual change you want to see is if if governments actually adopt this in some way and, and put some real meat to it in terms of policy, uh, I think we can actually see some uh, major differences because the health consequences are staggering. And there is some new research coming out, it's relatively new, that shows fructose in particular puts a lot of excess damage on onto your uh, and strain onto your liver. And there's some uh, interesting studies that have come out that have shown that excess fructose consumption, basically uh, the liver turns that excess fructose into fat and that fat resides in your liver cells, which leads to inflammation. And it's called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. It's basically the same as if you were an alcoholic and the impact on your liver. So they're finding more and more health consequences from added sugar every day. So I think you're right. Like how you actually implement this is a huge issue. But uh, I, I think from the top down, just having acknowledgement from different uh, Western governments that this is a huge problem is a huge first step. I, th- I mean, I think it is a first step. I think it's just a tiny first step. <laughs> Don't share your optimism yet. And that's because, you know, so high fructose corn syrup, for example, has gone out of fashion recently. And, you know, people now things are labeled as not having it, you know, as though that's a really good thing. But there's so many ways to sweeten, you know, your all of your food. And I feel like the the, you know, ultimately, we have evolved to like sweet things. And so we'll continue to seek them out. And as people as in, you know, the industry continues to provide foods that are high in these kinds of sugars, you know, is it just going to be another 10 years from now, there's going to be a different, you know, uctose (laughs) that we'll have to avoid. Uh, so let's actually pick up this discussion after the interview with Kirsten Babins Domingo. So we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. This week's episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Chick and Gillette. Overpaying for drugstore razor blades is a bad habit you should leave behind. So make the smart switch to Harry's. Harry's high-quality German-engineered blades are crafted for sharpness and precision. They're half the price of big-name drugstore brands, and they ship for free straight to your door. I know I've switched to Harry's and I'm never turning back. I love their blades and I love the razor they send with it and all packaged in this impressive design. Unboxing it was a, was a, one of the best unboxing experiences that I've had over the past couple of months. 
Their starter set is just $15. That includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming shave gel. But as an added bonus, Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you use your coupon code InquiringMinds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, coupon code InquiringMinds. And this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. For a limited time, The Great Courses is giving our listeners a special offer of up to 80% off the series Origins of the Human Mind. In this series, available in either video or audio, Professor Stephen P. Hinshaw of the University of California, Berkeley, provides a guide to the latest information and viewpoints on what neurobiologists, psychologists, and other scientists know about the human mind. Across 24 30-minute episodes, topics covered include how the human brain works, the development of the mind from infancy through adulthood, topics from abnormal psychology such as psychosis, schizophrenia, and mood disorders, and predictions of the future of human minds. This special offer of 80% off Origins of the Human Mind is only valid until April 15th. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more about this special offer or any of the other 500 other series offered by The Great Courses. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much for having me. Kirsten, we have you on to talk about the Sugar Science Project, which is a new initiative out of UCSF to really provide science-based evidence on what the impact of sugar is to our health. Can you give us an overview of the project and what you're hoping to accomplish with it? Sure. So Sugar Science um, uh, was started by several people at UCSF, recognizing that what was really required in this discussion about our health and about the impact of sugar and health was an objective uh, source of information about what the actual evidence is out there. Um, it's, we know that sugar's been in the news recently because of um, things about taxing sodas, because every week we read about another study. But there, and there, and there are a lot of people who are motivated, industries, food industries motivated to give you information that helps address the issue from their perspective. But there are very few sources of really objective information that can say, here's what the science shows. Here's without the hype, what are the, what is really um, the issues in the way sugar is related to chronic diseases like diabetes, heart disease, and liver disease? What is the truth about the sources of sugar in our diet? What is the truth about how much sugar we're eating? And um, what we hope is that people will go to the Sugar Science website, will follow us on all of our social media sites, and will use it as a way to understand for themselves um, what are the issues about sugar in my diet, the diet of my families, and how can I get involved in, in all of these discussions about how we can improve our own health. Now, the first thing that I see when I go to the website is this term added sugar, which seems to be a, a pretty prominent focus of the science and the movement. Can you talk about why added sugar, what, first of all, what added sugar is and why it's become uh, an area of focus? Sure. Um, so sugar is not an inherently evil substance. Sugar is naturally occurring. Many foods we eat have sugar in them. Fruit is high in sugar. Um, so we are not talking about uh, telling people not to eat fruit, fruit and vegetables. Those are really essential parts of a healthy diet. 
What, what has happened over time is that many foods that we eat have sugar added to them to enhance the play, flavor profile, to make them more palatable. Um, and, uh, and many people don't realize how much sugar is actually added to the th- foods that they eat. And so part of the emphasis here is really describing where the sources of sugar are in the diet that are not, that's not sugar inherent to healthy foods, but rather sugar that's added to foods that we eat that ends up being uh, the reason we are eating, consuming sugar in this great excess. Do we actually know how much sugar we should be eating compared to how much we actually are? Yeah. So on average, we're eating at least double the amount, if not more than what's actually recommended by most, uh, by most nutritional bodies. The new nutritional guidelines came out this past week and again emphasized that added sugar has been something that's been on the rise in the U.S. diet and is an area that many people, uh, should pay attention to as they seek to bring their diet more in balance. And let's get to the whammy here, the the health impacts of all this added sugar. What are we seeing in terms of the trend lines of how this sugar correlates to health impacts? Sure. So we know that, um, that sugar is uh, related to excessive calorie consumption and to obesity. What for me personally has been the more important piece is how it's really rated to the downstream consequences, which is really diabetes. And diabetes, even even when there's no excessive weight gain, it's pretty clear that the high consumption of sugar is related to diabetes risk. And what we're seeing in the U.S. is really extraordinarily high rates of diabetes that are going up and, uh, and they're going up in all communities, uh, in particularly in poor and minority communities, which is of particular concern to me. And, uh, I think understanding the link between, uh, the excessive amounts of sugar that we're consuming and the downstream effects of diabetes in particular, but also heart disease and, and liver disease is, is really the main motivation behind, uh, behind sugar science and the attempt to get more information out there. Why is it rising at a greater rate in in minority and poor communities, as you mentioned? Yeah, I think there it's a multifactorial. There are many reasons for this. Um, part is uh, in poor and minority communities. Oftentimes, there is uh, both because of limited financial resources, limited opportunities within the neighborhood to really um, have access to uh, the types of foods that um, are part of a healthy diet. There's uh, there so so that's a piece. It's just the financial piece. Then we layer on top of it the things that over time. Added sugars, foods that contain added sugars, candies and uh, sodas, uh, the price of these uh, of these foods have actually been held relatively low compared to the average consumer price index. That means they're cheaper than one would have assumed they should be as prices rise. By contrast, things like fruits and vegetables are actually higher in price than the average consumer price index. So if you look at a a poor person, a person who might have some financial constraints making decisions about how to spend their limited dollars, it's easier to spend on unhealthy foods because they are cheaper. And uh, foods like fruits and vegetables are actually disproportionate 
disproportionately higher in price. And so, so right there, even a person trying to make good, healthy choices can on the margins be forced into other things. Um, there are biological uh, aspects that may put certain groups at higher risk um, for, for cardiometabolic conditions like the ones that we're talking about. Um, and I think all of these factors come together. Um, and, uh, and I think it's important uh, that we think and talk specifically about these groups because they are also groups that frankly are being targeted in the types of advertisements for these high sugary substances as well. So from my perspective as a physician who cares for patients in these, in these communities, I think I, I feel a particular, it's particularly important for me to speak to the health issues in these communities, not from a perspective of, um, of, of, of blame, but of understanding the many factors that really contribute to, uh, to the diet that leads to these, uh, these higher rates of diabetes and really thinking about and working with these communities to try to understand how we best can reverse this process. I don't, I don't want to sound too pessimistic, but you're a physician. Yeah. And you're talking about the chief driving force is a market condition that uh, the price of these goods are being held really low. So what kind of interventions can a physician uh, or even a community really make when it comes to something as uh, as uh, pernicious as as an economic factor like that? Yeah, it's a really great question. If you had asked me, would I be the doctor telling people don't eat this and do eat this? I would have never thought that would have been me. Um, but what happened for me is that, you know, I was taking care of patients and all of a sudden I'm taking care of patients. Uh, when I read in the textbook about heart disease, you know, beginning after age 50 and middle age and older age, and I look in my clinic, which is mostly poor and minority patients, and I see patients in their 20s and 30s um, getting, having diabetes that they've had for many years, having heart attack, having strokes, heart failure, you all of a sudden realize you have to be energized about thinking earlier about how do we prevent these conditions. And when we think about how do we prevent conditions even earlier, when people are getting sick and dying in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. We have to prevent these things from happening when people are in their teens and younger. Um, and those are probably not really medical solutions. Those are solutions in thinking about also the entire environment that, um, that people in these communities are living and working and raising their families. And so what it's done for me is it's really taken me outside of thinking about purely the solutions that happen in the doctor's office to thinking about how we as a health community concerned about health work uh, and work with policymakers, work with community organizations to really shine a light on, on, um, on the importance in this area. It can make you pessimistic for sure. I think here's the reasons to be optimistic. One is... Um, when you when you can get uh, so we've worked with several groups um, who are community groups who are interested we're interested in the soda tax in San Francisco. Um, Let, let's pause right there. So let's describe what the soda tax was. Sure. So um, so there were several efforts around the country in New York and San Francisco, Richmond, Berkeley um, that have over the last year been interested in addressing the issue of um, of uh, regulation or taxation of sugary beverages. Why do we target sugary beverages? Because half 
half of the added sugar in the diet, somewhere between 30 and half of the added sugar in your diet is from sugary things that you drink. Um, that means if we're targeting, you, you already heard the focus of sugar science. If we're targeting added sugar in the diet, the easiest way someone can reduce the added sugar in their diet is to decrease, take the sugary drinks out of their diet. Um, why do these, these regulations and taxation, uh, issues exist? They existed because of the importance of these particular, um, substances as contributing to sugary beverages. Um, but also for the taxation issue, because there was an opportunity to use the, um, the money from taxation to actually reinvest in programs that address uh, nutrition in the schools, that address physical activity, that address other things related to health. I think it was really exciting to see, um, to have our research and the research of my colleagues in our center uh, put in the hands of community organizations to try to think about why this was an issue for their community. I, I would, I will say that one can be pessimistic and say that, you know, there's a lot of marketing to particular groups and particular populations. I will also say that when you uh, see young people, teenagers, young adults, all of a sudden take hold of an issue and, uh, and really understand all the forces that might have an impact on their health, particularly if they feel their choices are limited because of other forces out of their control, um, they're a pretty powerful group uh, to try to actually get motivated and to, to talk about the real issues at hand. Is this an uncomfortable place to be as a physician, to be not only telling people what's healthy and not healthy, which I'm used to when I go to my physician, but now trying to do that for an entire community? It seems like you're taking a step beyond what I sort of associate with a doctor. Now you're involved in policy making. You're involved in community activation. You're really becoming a uh, it, coming into a role of an activist, uh, how is that? How do you see that personally, and then how does the institution see that? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a really interesting question. So my job as a physician is is to talk in a true way about health. Uh, that that is my job. Um, that is that's the oath I've taken as a physician. My job as a researcher is actually not to be involved in advocacy. It's actually just to to actually to bring the facts out in an important way about the links between um, the way we're eating and the health consequences. But I do believe that the that that as academics, we have an obligation not just to put our science on the shelf, but actually to put our science in the hands of people who can use it to make decisions for policymakers, for uh, community activists, for, for individuals. That's at, at the heart of what sugar science is, is putting science in the hands of, of other people. And that is how we approached much of the debates about uh, about the, the types of uh, soda tax and other things that were uh, that there, was not really to be um, involved as the frontline advocates ourselves, but our obligation is to say, here is what the facts are about uh, about sugary beverages. Here is what the economists tell us taxation can do. Here is what would happen if we could reinvest in our communities uh, and really target prevention efforts to the communities that are most affected by diabetes. Here is what could happen. And once you have the facts, the community organizations can figure out what, what to do with that. So I, I do believe this is an obligation of 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 uh, of people who are generating the type of research to then put it in the hands of people who can use it to make their decisions. So, what does public health say would happen with the the tax on sugary beverages? What would we what can we expect to see if we affect prices in a way in these communities? 
Yeah, I mean, I, this, uh, our, our best example is, uh, Mexico that actually instituted a soda tax and you saw declines in soda consumption. And, uh, and it happened pretty dramatically. And I think in the U.S., the economists say that, you know, a penny per ounce tax or a two penny per ounce tax, um, would lead to somewhere between 10 and 20% reduction in, uh, in consumption of, um, of these sugary beverages. There's a lot of question of what would happen in poor and minority communities, whether you would have greater or lesser effects. And I, but I think on average, most people would think that the, that the effects would be equivalent in those communities. And actually because poor and minority communities often consume more soda and because they have um, um, also high rates of diabetes, what we've shown in our work is that even if you assume the tax has the same impact on behaviors, that the impact in terms of diabetes avoided is proportionately greater in those communities. So how do we think about that? A tax that affects everybody um, means everyone has some health benefits, but poor and minority communities actually benefit proportionately more because more diabetes cases would be averted in those communities. And I think it's important that we don't see the taxation issue as a we're taxing poor people. We are, ta we are, the, the tax is something that actually has the ability both to have a beneficial health impact on these very communities. And then additionally, I think our, the job of policymakers is to make sure that, uh, for this particular type of, um, policy tool, taxation, that the revenue actually goes back into reinvesting in those communities. There are lots of things we need to do to prevent diabetes. It has to do with uh, physical activity. It has to do with other healthy choices in our diet, like fruits and vegetables. Um, one of the things our center does right now is uh, we actually have a, um, we're, we're leading a, a large uh, initiative in San Francisco to actually put fruits and vegetable vouchers in poor and minority neighborhoods in San Francisco. Um, what are fruit and vegetable vouchers? They're basically, um, these are vouchers that essentially, uh, uh, give you more economic clout to buy these more expensive fruits and vegetables. They, yeah. Meaning what? Like you can walk into a Whole Foods and like get, get fruits and vegetables using, using this voucher that doesn't cost you as much money. Yeah, basically, this is a voucher is like a certificate worth $5 of fruits and vegetables. You could mm -hmm. walk into any store. You mm -hmm. could walk into Safeway. You could walk into your corner store. You could walk into Whole Foods, whatever you want. So vouchers in dollar values of between $5 and $10, that's what we're looking at. The idea is to... Um, is to uh, basically give... Recognizing the disparity in cost of these items and in these communities really blanketing these communities with essentially more purchasing power for things that are healthy. What do we think that will happen? Yeah, it might benefit Whole Foods. You know who, what we think it'll really happen. We've always, uh, you know, people have torn their hair out and saying, oh, you know, we don't have enough supermarkets. Supermarkets don't survive in these poor and minority neighborhoods. A lot of times they don't survive because people don't have the ability to, to purchase the types of items. This is a strategy that really works on the demand side and says, if we're interested in health and we know that health 
requires a diet that is higher in fruits and vegetables. Let's put the purchasing power in the hands of the people in the community. And then guess what? The corner stores will start putting stocking fruits and vegetables. If you have people who have the money to spend on fruits and vegetables, you'll see more fruits and vegetables in those neighborhoods. And that's what we're excited about because we have a great coalition of community leaders, of vendors. Vendors are excited about this too. It's not that people don't want to serve, uh, sell fruits and vegetables. It is these complicated market forces that really create these disincentives on both sides. But we think as leaders in public health, in clinical medicine, and really people and community activists, that we can come together and think about these creative solutions outside of the clinical setting that really, I think, will improve the diet. And tracking back a little bit, you mentioned that uh, the tax and, and some of these other initiatives would would represent maybe a 10 to 20% decline yeah. in added sugar consumption. Is there like a target number? Like we hear in climate change, we need to get to 350 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. Is there such a target <laughs> when it comes to added sugar? Or do we just not know enough about the science about how much we need to reduce? Yeah, I, I, I have to say, personally, I'm driven a little bit less by the target and I'm driven more by the awareness. I, I feel that, um, um, I think sometimes people grow weary of all the diet, the diet trends and we don't do this and we should do this and we should hit this target. I think, uh, I'm concerned when things are really out of whack in the diet. And the U.S. diet is really out of whack in certain things. We're really out of whack in how much sugar we're consuming. We're really out of whack in how little fruits and vegetables we're consuming. Those are areas where, and those are, to me, um, they're, they're in some ways flip sides of the same coin, right? So um, I think that, so for me, it's looking at that high amount. I'm not trying to get everyone to a target. I'm saying, well, where is it for you? If you're drinking sugary beverages, there's probably not a reason to do that, right? There's hardly any nutritional value in it. And if you're doing it because you think you're trying to eat your fruits and vegetables, then just eat your fruits and vegetables. That's the better way to consume those things. Great thing about fruits is that they're sweet themselves. Put them in your yogurt, put them on your cereal instead of the things that are really the added sugars or use a more naturally occurring sugar like honey or something like that. So I, I guess I'm less driven of making everyone obsessed about getting to a target and more thinking about sort of where is your diet a little bit out of whack and what types of choices can you make uh, to to help move it in better balance and then how can we have our policies support those choices so that means a little bit of disincentivizing those things that we know are really bad for you and really out of whack and then helping incentivize in poor and minority communities how do we create that financial infrastructure that allows the choice to, uh, for healthier options like fruits and vegetables now you mentioned a lot of your prevention work is focused on teens and having teen advocates for this area. Uh, why teens? You know, my my mother, who's in, in her late 70s now, is a diabetic. Uh, I have a risk of type 2 in my family, and I'm in my 30s. Uh, why not along the spectrum that I reside in, the somebody that has a risk for it, as opposed to a broad category of teens? Right. No, it's a, it's a great category. It's a great question. So, uh, you know, let me be clear. I, I want all people to be concerned about their risk of diabetes and what they can do to improve their health. When I look at, again, uh, my, my uh, clinical population that I take care of, um, and I look in poor and minority populations, what I'm seeing is chronic disease happening in the twenties, thirties, and forties. And that means prevention has to start earlier, has to start in, in, uh, in childhood, adolescence, 
adolescence and in young adulthood. So when I'm trying to reach the communities I want to reach, I have to start at that age group. Um, what does that mean? And so, so, well, why can't we use just the same things? Well, it turns out that the messages to reach your mother in her 80s or you at your age, those messages are different than starting in their, in their, in teens and, and young adults. Teens and young adults in general, don't necessarily perceive themselves at risk, right? The, the young invincibles, we call them, right? There's there, there's different perceptions. There are different ways to communicate about risk. There are different ways to communicate in general. Um, and so I, I think this is a group that's generally speaking falling through, fallen through the cracks, to be perfectly honest with you. I think that we have, um, it's, it's both harder to, uh, to, to know the types of health promotion, disease prevention messages that meet, that reach youth and young adults. Um, and, uh, and, you know, as you say, why should we really focus on them? I think we really need to focus on them to, when we understand that for poor and minority communities, their future our future is really at risk now because we have that middle, that uh, young adult population, that population that usually in most communities is the driver for for uh, future economic health in a community, is the driver for who you're raising your families, is the driver for everything. That's the that's the age group that's getting sick. Okay. That's the age group that's getting sick. And if that's the age group that's getting sick, then it really is a, an urgency right now to think about how to have prevention start earlier. I'm really curious what works. I kind of flash back to my own, you know, health awareness campaigns when I was a yeah. teenager. And sadly, I grew up in kind of a conservative area and they were preaching, you know, abstinence, which didn't work at all. Right. Um, and I'm, it, and you mentioned this issue of like having this group understand that they're at risk. So right. how do you convey to them that they're at risk in a way that they understand? I don't even know what behaviors they're engaging in that you would consider at risk for this. Right. No, it's, it's great. We've been really fortunate to have really strong. So the first thing is to recognize that we have no idea. So, uh, <laughs> so, um, uh, so we, we've had really wonderfully strong partnerships. One of the partners that we're really uh, proud of is, um, our partnership with Youth Speaks, which is a youth empowerment, um, a group that teaches, uh, um, uh, give youth voice through spoken word. We, we started with this idea, um, that, you know, if we tell young people some of the facts and just give them the facts and then let them think about what they would like to do, that maybe that's, that might work. And this was an organization that was helping, uh, you to develop, uh, their voices through spoken word. And when we gave them, um, uh, workshops on health, on diabetes, they all, have experience with someone in their families who have who have uh, who've been sick, who've fallen victim of uh, of diabetes, heart disease earlier in life, and when you start to give them the facts, they themselves can create that narrative that makes sense to them. And so, if you look at the bigger picture dot uh, org, uh, that is part of our um, that we have a, a series of really fabulous um, uh, videos um, that were created by the youth poets of Youth Speaks um, about uh, diabetes, about diet, about uh, the health impacts in their community. And these have really, they've won very nice awards from public health organizations. Um, they have been used as public service announcements in California. And I think they really represent what we need to do is is not to figure out how to talk to, to youth, but, but to 
to figure out how people in these communities really themselves become galvanized to create um, and the health messages themselves. And again, I, I will say that um, youth are a pretty powerful group if they think there are forces um, that are outside of their control that are impacting their health. They become, uh, it, it's quite a galvanizing force uh, when they think about, uh, in my experience, when, when they, when they, when you present the messages in that way, uh, they can start to see. And it, I think it gives a lot of, um, there's a lot of sort of taking control again and taking control of the message, which is what I think is the most important piece here. Can this scale? Uh, yeah. A, or is there action needed from a, from a national level, a top-down approach to, to sort of be complementary to this bottom-up approach? Um, I, so can it scale? I think, um, it, it's a, it's a good point. So I, I, so my personal view, let's just take the issue of, um, let's just take the issue of, of discussions about soda and then the specific things. So each little, each city had its own ways they thought about the campaigns, each had their own ways they thought about, um, the community groups that were involved. If you look nationally, rates of soda consumption have gone down even though only one city at this point has passed it, and that's Berkeley. Now, why have rates of soda consumption going down? Because the dialogue is part of the process. The discussion is part of the process. So does it scale? It scales because more talk about this, um, I think, helps people to think about what's important. And that helps people to think about what are the right solutions in their own communities that make sense for them. Um, I think all of this ultimately does require a little bit of oversight from, from somebody more than just the community organizations, whether that's at the state or the federal level. And that's because I think the market forces are pretty strong. I think there are a lot of incentives to sell, to sell different products. There are a lot of incentives we know to market to specific communities. Um, and, uh, it's, it's not a matter of being paranoid. It's a matter of just looking at, uh, at how marketing campaigns are run at what types of communities are being targeted. Um, and I think, you know, I think that that um, that to the extent that much of these discussions are about how do we reduce certain types of consumptions, um, companies figure out how to how to counter market, how to do other things. And so I think that is where some types of state or federal oversight is ultimately required just to keep everything a little bit in balance. You mentioned off the top that the new guidelines were agreed upon, but not approved by Congress or whatever sort of federal authority yeah. it is. So like a committee of, of uh, health advocates and scientists came together and approved yeah. new, new guidelines. Um, but what is it sort of as a next step beyond guidelines that's going to make a difference? Is it labeling of added sugars on every uh, on you know every soda, every uh, 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 thing that we eat, like neck below that sugar line that already exists on on labels, or is it something else entirely? Yeah, I think I think labels are important, but they are not the, the sole solution. I think most of the studies of labels is that people don't don't really um, make a lot of different choices just because of labels. I do think it is about these these discussions that that we're having. I think it is about. Um, uh, I, the, the things that I think these discussions, I, maybe I'm an optimist at heart. These discussions, um, 
are encouraging to me because um, because I think small changes when they happen early set patterns for how people um, what people consider to be normal patterns of eating and, and patterns of behavior. So if you have discussions about the importance of soda in the in uh, soda uh, in the diet as a as a as a risk and uh, and we start early and we, and we make sure that, that, that sodas are not available in schools, that we make sure that kids under five never drink sodas. Then all of a sudden you raise a generation of people who, when they eat, when they go out, when you're a teenager and you go out, it's not always that you're eating, you know, your fast food with soda. You're eating your fast food with something else, right? So it's sort of the patterns of behavior that, 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 that foods don't always have to go together, that when you finish your sporting event, you don't always have to have, um, this certain type of snack afterwards. It's, I think those patterns as they shift and we know they shift, they shift in response to the marketing demands of companies. And I think they shift in response to greater awareness and discussions like we're having now. And it's those small shifts, I think that do ultimately bring about, uh, bring about change. The reason I'm more optimistic too, is that, is that when things start earlier in life, they have an impact. I think changes that teens, young adults make have the potential to impact parents. It has the potential to impact younger people. There, it has a potential to impact when they have their own children, how they think about it, and so, and and I do think it might not be these big changes that happen very quickly, but they're small changes that happen over time. And uh, and I think in that age group, they can have this multi generational impact that is sort of interesting and uh, and I think is cause for hope. How well developed in the medical and and scientific research community is this study of these communities that are more at risk for these health issues uh, and how responsive uh, are these communities to those needs? I, I sort of uh, reflect that my sort of notion of the medical establishment isn't nearly as diverse as those communities that they're, uh, they're talking about uh, educating around this issue. Yeah, it's, it's a really, really great, uh, great point. Uh, when I, um, uh, we would like a uh, a research community that reflects the the communities the diversity of the communities in the U.S. We would like a medical workforce that reflects the diversity of the communities that uh, that the medical workforce serves. We know that we're really far off from doing that, um, and we think this is this is important not just for you know for social justice issues. It's also important because the best science is done when you have a diversity of input and opinions. Um, we think that people who come from these communities often see the patterns, these complex patterns of forces that, that lead to poor health in different ways and can generate new and important hypotheses. So the NIH has recognized this, that the NIH has just recently invested in, um, in, uh, in a large initiative to increase the diversity of the biomedical workforce. We were fortunate at UCSF um, uh, uh, that our partner, San Francisco State University, which is a large public university in the city, got one of these grants in uh, partnership with us. And so this is a project called SF Build. And the goal of SF Build is really to um, to really to increase the, the diversity of the biomedical workforce uh, through this partnership between our two institutions. The thing we love about this initiative and what I think is powerful here potentially is that, you know, there are many, uh, 
bright students, high school students, undergraduates who um, have the potential for careers in science, who oftentimes um, don't go on to pursue those careers because of a perception perhaps that they want to do something that will more clearly give back to their communities. One of our goals in SF Build is to say that that doing research that uh, relates to the health issues in your community is a way to give back. And so we're deeply grounded in SF Build in the health issues of all of the diverse communities within San Francisco. And what we want to do is create a learning environment for the students who are part of SF Build that really helps them see careers in research as really tied to the health issues in the community. And so if they want to give back, if we all want to give back, it is about really um, giving back in a variety of different ways that also includes how do we how do we do the most robust science that really addresses the critical health needs as they manifest themselves not generally but very specifically in the communities they're interested in how quickly do we need to make all of these changes from uh, how we're eating to the diversity of the workforce to uh, education programs for teens for us to actually make a difference uh, because it seems like uh, there's a generation that have already sort of succumbed to some of the health consequences that we're referring to. Uh, is there some sort of urgency around this that needs to be addressed right away? Yeah. So, um, you know, when, so I tend not to be somebody who, who just is a doomsayer, but, um, I think the, the statistic that got to me and got me really galvanized around these issues was that, uh, the Center for Disease Control published a statistic that, uh, 10 years ago, one in 11 teens had the precursors of diabetes. And today, it's one in four teens. So that's one in four teens who, if left unchecked, are very likely to develop diabetes. That's already um, a public health emergency right now, left unchecked. This is not something that's going to happen in the future. This is happening right now. If you look in uh, Latino and African American communities, whereas one in four, uh, white teens may develop diabetes, those numbers are closer to one in two teens for African Americans. Those numbers are staggering. So we are talking about, uh, thinking about this is something that will impact these communities right now in the next in the next upcoming years. This is a public health emergency and it does mean we have to take all the steps we can. We don't have the luxury to think about, oh, is it behavior or is it environment? Is it genes or is it policy? We don't have it. It is all of those things. And we have to understand all of those things. But more importantly, we have to take action in very real and meaningful ways. So from the workforce, we have to have uh, that, that future generation of scientists. We have to have our current generation of scientists to be focused on what are the important research questions we need to address. We have to have our medical leaders thinking about how do we design and develop clinical programs that reach all the communities in important ways. But we also need the policies. We need the environment that really creates the policies uh, that that recognizes um, how we can improve health for everyone, but also how we can improve health in these communities that are particularly vulnerable to poor health and poor health care. And there is an urgency to these issues. Um, the, the, the numbers right now are staggering, and they... 
I don't think we're at the point that we want to say we can write off a whole a whole generation or a whole set of communities. I think when we look whether whether you you yourself are more motivated by um by social justice that it's just unfair for this to happen in the US which really fundamentally it is unfair or whether you're motivated by economics it makes no sense in the US to have uh to raise these large portions of of our population who will develop poor health at the time in their life when they are supposed to be having jobs and making money and supporting their communities. This is, this is an urgency from an economic point of view, from a social justice point of view, from just a human point of view. Uh, and I think requires attention now. Well, at least you've given us hope for this to address <laughs> the, the staggering problem. Kirsten Babins Domingo, thank you for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Kirsten's definitely an optimist, but you sound like you're a pessimist. What do you think? I am. And maybe that's because I love sugar. I mean, I I eat way too much of it. And I know that I eat way too much of it. And yet, you know, it's very, it's it's a hard thing for me to implement to, you know, get rid of it. I've, I've tried and it ha- didn't make a huge impact in my life. You know, I, you know, I also at one point in my life, don't tell my mom, hopefully she's not listening, um, did smoke. And it was easy for me to get, I mean, uh, you know, not that easy, but it was not that difficult to give up smoking when I realized that this really was affecting a lot of aspects of my life, including my singing career. But in in terms of sugar, I don't know. It's 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 hard for me to get behind this idea that we really need to cut down so much of it. And maybe I don't consume as much sugar as the average American, although I'd be surprised because I do eat I do feel like I eat a lot of sugar. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I this you know, reading, listening to the interview, reading these guidelines, it's kind of like I get it, but I also am probably going to have some chocolate after dinner. <laughs> I eat way too much sugar too. I have a sweet tooth. I know I am the one that's pushing the median uh, up. But do you think a, a tax will work? I mean, Kirsten mentions all the economists that say you know a cent per tax uh, per ounce of soda may make a difference, especially if that money's reinvested in the community. We both live here in San Francisco where there was the tax was shot down in the last election. Do you think that would make any difference in terms of your behavior? Well, first of all, I was surprised that the that the uh, tax bill didn't or you know wasn't wasn't voted through. Um, it was a surprise to me because it seems like a pretty insignificant change. And on the one hand, I don't know that it'll necessarily change behavior. I, adding another penny to a soda, I don't think is going to make people less likely to buy it. But I do think that putting the money back into programs that might, you know, encourage people to go to farmers markets or eat more fruits and vegetables or, you know, have other kinds of, you know, impacts, I think that is a great idea. And just like I think that, you know, any money from tax that goes that, you know, gets taxed from cigarettes should go to, you know, helping people fight their addiction to cigarettes and or the health issues. You know, I think that that's a good idea. I just don't know that it's necessarily going to be a deterrent. I actually think we're making progress. I am much more optimistic than you. Ten years ago, all fast food chains were serving their meals with Coke. And while that's still available, that that is on the decline in a pretty significant way. So I'm hopeful change can happen. I don't know if change can happen quick enough based on what uh, what she's saying. And I'll tell you a short story. There's another uh, a scientist on on this group at sugarscience.org, Dean Schillinger, who tells this story, he worked in this trauma ward at San Francisco General Hospital in the 80s. 
when the AIDS epidemic was going on. And there's a famous ward there, Ward 5A. And he said it was filled with patients. You could tell you were at the heart of a major global, uh, a major health epidemic. And now that ward is filled with people that are suffering consequences of, of added sugar, type two diabetes, heart disease. And these are young people too in their twenties and thirties. So regardless of if you're optimistic, if change is going to happen, change is coming because we can't bear the weight of the costs that are associated with the consequences. Yeah, I mean, I and I'm all for it. I just, you know, I'm just a little concerned that we don't really know what the right way is to go about fixing this problem. Because ultimately, I think this is a, is a it's a as she mentions, this is a bigger problem than just getting people to drink fewer sugary soft drinks. I mean, that's obviously one big way of making an impact. That's a relatively small thing. But we have a problem of, uh, you know, food that is available and, and time that people have to prepare food. You know, fast food is cheaper and has more sugar and, you know, is more convenient than the good food that we really should be making. Well, I hope uh, for all of our benefit that that changes in the next five years. Uh, I do think we'll put some links to some of the resources she mentioned on our Tumblr page uh, at sh- the sugarscience.org website. And uh, there's a a great piece in the Washington Post that is a periodic table of added sugar that is well researched that tells you all of the added sugar that shows up in your in your diet and the consequences thereof. Well, maybe I should go and take a take a gander at that. <laughs> well, I'm definitely for one going to have some water tonight. <laughs> so that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or our Tumblr page at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow, on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. How about sugar-free cookie recipes? And once again, this week's episode is sponsored by harrys.com. Harry's is less than two years old and already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. And Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you go to harrys.com and use coupon code inquiringminds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, coupon code inquiringminds. This episode is also sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, the great courses are available on digital download and streaming, or DVD and CD. And for a limited time only, the great courses is offering our listeners 80% off the original price of one of their courses, Origins of the Human Mind. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, The Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, The Huffington Post, Mother Jones, Slate, and Wired. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.